I love having an opportunity to be new at something again, like to be at that spot where you can make huge gains and you don't know whether you should feel good or bad about something yet. You just kind of go do it and you, you judge yourself on how hard you worked and what kind of story you get out of it. That was Lauren Fleshman, and this is the Running on Ohm podcast. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and here at Running on Ohm, I bring you conversations with pioneers of the mind-body-spirit connection. Today's conversation is with Lauren Fleshman, who's back for our monthly Ask Lauren Fleshman series on Running on Ohm, where Lauren brings her real live stories and wisdom as a professional runner, coach, mother, entrepreneur, and writer to answer listener questions on all things that pop up when living an athletic life. In this episode, Lauren digs into some of your questions this past month on how to make the transition and find the motivation to return back to consistent training after a long break, coaching advice on fostering a balanced team culture for middle school and high school runners, reflections from Lauren on her father, insight on the decision to pursue professional running post-collegiately, the impact of life stress on endurance training, and how to cultivate courage to face your fears. Lauren also reflects on her past month where she learned some powerful lessons on being a beginner as she returns back to running post-injury and also trains for her first mountain bike race. We also share some of the writing prompts that you all submitted last month, so thank you to all those who shared with us. We were so moved by your words. If you dig this Ask Lauren Fleshman series on Running on Ohm, reach out as always on Twitter or Instagram. Let us know what you thought about it and share this conversation with your running buddy, your mailman, your mom, your friend. I always love to hear from all of you. If Running on Ohm is part of your life and brings you weekly inspiration, please consider donating to Running on Ohm's Patreon page, where you can help me provide all of you the highest quality podcasts every week and in return get insider access and exclusive content. Visit patreon.com slash running on ohm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash running on ohm to donate and know that any amount of support helps. A huge thank you to all those who've already joined me on this Patreon journey. I'm so grateful for all of you. You ready to dive deep together in today's episode with Lauren Fleshman? Your first moment, your favorite moment. (laughs) The first sentence. (laughs) Always. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah. We've both just gotten back from traveling and landing back home always feels good. Yes. <laughs> Peyton Jordan weekend. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Big track meet down at Stanford. Visited my, uh, the school I went to. Your alma mater. My alma mater. That's what you call it. And, um, coached three women who raced. Call your melon Jess kind of the seat the real season true season opener I guess for for Little Wing and um it was really cool actually like this was the first track meet that I've been to where I didn't leave feeling I wish I was racing that was kind of a weird experience I think experiencing so many ups and downs with the athletes that I was coaching you know we had kind of a mixed results weekend um it just reminded me of the tough parts of the sport that even when you're training really hard and you want it so much and it seems like everything should work out that sometimes it still doesn't. Sometimes you can't really figure out why. And sometimes when I'm away from the sport and missing it, I forget about those parts. It's easy to kind of glamorize the, you know, the parts where things come together and the dreaming and chasing the dreams and all those things. But it's hard work, man. (laughs) It is hard work. It is hard work, yeah. And uh, the other thing that was cool about being at Peyton Jordan was I was 
witnessing athlete moments, but also coaching moments. And um, there was this moment where Coach Greg Metcalf of University of Washington was watching his athlete have this incredible performance in the men's 1500. And the announcer was screaming his name and, you know, he's coming down the final straightaway and you can hear the roar of the crowd on the home stretch. And we're on the back stretch. And I'm just kind of walking in the dark out, you know, under a random walkway. And I hear this screaming and I look towards the track, towards where the lights are coming down on the track. And I just see the silhouette of Greg Metcalf with his body like against the fence and his feet even up on the fence. His feet aren't even on the ground, you know, and he's just pumping one arm with, you know, in in sync with each stride of his athlete until he was safely across the line. And watching that, um, I had to stop and take a picture. Like I was just like, this is a beautiful thing. And these are the moments that you don't, you know, you don't see from the photographer's bank of photos after a meet in the post meet wrap up, but they're real. And, um, and, uh, being privy to them was really cool. And also it was cool because it gave me a little insight into what my coaches probably felt like, you know, on their side of the fence many times. Well, and as a coach, I kept on thinking about how, like, you don't have control at all of what your athletes do, really. Mm-mm. Like, it's a very, it's a really weird situation where you're watching this person, you've invested so much time and heart into them, yet you have no control over actually how they perform. Yeah. So it's like you also have to let go of so much attachment. Absolutely. Yeah, you do. And it's, um, I mean, I imagine it's like teaching uh, it definitely feels sometimes like parenting, although I hate using that analogy because my athletes are not my children, right? But there is a similarity there in that you're investing into a life, into a person, and then you have no control over what actually happens to them. <clears throat> and all you can kind of do is try to build resilience, preparedness, and confidence in themselves. And that's it. And of course, you know, after the races, I'm racking my head what, you know, what could I do better? How did I prepare them? Um, what have they done in the last 10 days? You know, I, I talked to my old coach, Mark Rowland, while I was there and to uh, Bob Lesko and Sarah Lesko and other people I trust and just like, okay, this is just a good time of year for everybody, athlete or coach to go, where are we at? This is kind of our first benchmark. Where do we want to be? Why are we where we're at? Um, how much of where we're at is the result of things panning out or not panning out the way you planned and how much of it is a matter of you're on track, but you just need more time for things to soak in before you come out the other side. That's, it's hard. This is really the tricky time of coaching. The fall is easy. Winter is easy, you know, and now it's finesse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is is where things get individualized where even though we only have three athletes, they probably won't do workouts together hardly at all the same workout they'll meet for warm up and cool down but they'll be doing different things because they have different needs you know and um it's the competition season is upon us eight weeks till the trials damn that's soon yeah and when you look at your days at stanford do you remember when you crossed the line like what was your instinct was it to find your coach was it to find jesse just like you know those moments afterwards where you want to soak in your performance or is it just to catch your breath like did you have any flashbacks of that yeah i definitely remember um i remember most of the time i wanted to see my coach i definitely felt like there was that partnership there that they were invested and 
you know, just like I wanted to report back how a workout went right away. I wanted to kind of see them, but I really always, my best races, I wanted to spend time by myself. I felt this pull to go on a really long cool down alone. And sometimes I have a distinct memory of um, the first NCAA championship I won in the 5K was in Eugene. And I wasn't expected to win, and I won. And I went on this long cool down, and I ran out to Priest Trail across the Willamette Bridge, and I just laid in a grass field and stared at the sky. Like I just wanted to just soak in the moment, and I felt really um, happy and proud. And I, those were feelings I just wanted to feel by myself. And I knew they were fleeting, and I knew that the next race, anything could happen, you know. So it's, it was funny. And then later in the night, I always liked to be around other people. <laughs> and uh, kind of like the weaving back together of your teammates' performances and your performance and how, how it all shook out as a team and celebrating other people and all that, um, contributing to a bigger environment. All those things were cool. But yeah, at first, it's just just being with myself. I think that's beautiful. I think it's important to sometimes after big accomplishments or moments to be able to actually learn how to celebrate it within instead of looking for exterior approval or confirmation to actually just be able to sit with yourself in that yeah. joy is special. Totally. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> so what what's happening with your running right now? I know I feel like every month we've talked there's just been new new developments which is really exciting. Yeah. Um, Even though they haven't always been linear, I feel like this month <laughs> has brought some new fruit. <laughs> it has. I So yesterday I ran two times 10 minutes straight with a little three-minute walk between, and most of it was pain-free, like 17 of the 20 minutes uh, of total running, and that was really great. Um, I'm running every other day, and they always add up to 20 minutes, and I'm just gradually making them bigger and bigger chunks until I can run 20 minutes straight. And then when I can run 20 minutes straight, I'll see where I go from there. But um, it feels it feels really good. I actually, I don't know if we talked about this last time or not, but um, now that I'm running every other day and I'm having pain-free runs, it's interspersed in there. I still have runs where I'm like, ah, oh, why does it hurt? It's never going to get better. I'm broken, whatever. But um, the fact that I'm having pain-free runs sometimes is really good. But it's completely changed how the rest of my life feels. <laughs> and um, it, it like has made it really obvious to me how much running is the kindling for a lot of the joy in my life. And that kind of makes me scared, to be honest. It's not like I was non-functional before. I was doing plenty of things and things that I loved and whatever, but the amount of light that has come in since I've been running is noticeable. And it's like, how can one thing, one thing have that much power to illuminate your life? Like, should I be scared of that or should I just step into it and just accept it? Because I think that because running has been taken away from me, you know, for several times in my career, like up to a year at a time, um, it can go away again. I mean, maybe this won't ever completely heal, right? And so there's that thought of, uh, I don't want any one thing. I don't want to be dependent on any one thing for there to be light, that much light. I hear you. But I also sometimes, to me, I understand our souls have agreements with things. Mm -hmm. And I think your soul has an agreement with running. 
And that's like, it is so a part of you beyond just as a professional runner. It's a part of like your being and the fabric yeah. of your being and what brings your being, like what lights you up. And so it makes sense to me like, yeah. that you would feel more whole, more yourself. Yeah. Even I, I mean, that's true. I could see that. Because I think everyone's souls have different agreements with different things. And some people are in touch with those passions, which is beautiful. And other people aren't, you know? Yeah. I do. I, I mean, I, I guess that's the part of me that feels like I should just feel lucky that I know what that thing is and that I have that thing in my life. I've identified it and I um, have had so much experience with it. And I, it's just there's it's just that part of me that's like, I just hope I can keep doing it. In yeah, any capacity. Of course. of course. Um and I suppose if I ever couldn't do it anymore, you know, could happen at any age. Uh I'd if it was official and final, I'd find something else. But maybe the part of the problem is it hasn't been official and final anytime it's been taken away, so I haven't really had to find a different kindling. <laughs> what have you found like the mental experience of actual running, not just the obviously the buzz and the glow you feel after, yeah. but like the mental experience as you come back to running and like rebuild the, that mental dialogue? Oh my gosh, it's just it's even in only twenty minutes. It's a it's huge. The uh, like having 20 minutes, even when broken up with a walk break, I get into this zone with myself, into my breath, into my, I don't even want to say my mind because it's not even really into my mind. It's just, it's like allows me to be in this state of being for 20 minutes that I haven't found a replacement for. And so I'm, I, it just feels so good. It feel, it does feel like a full body buzz. It feels like I'm humming, you know? And, uh, and it, what, here's one interesting thing I noted yesterday, 20 minutes of running was I don't actually need more than 20 minutes. 20 minutes is great. 20 more would be great, but I actually don't need it. Like if the most I can run is 20 minutes. Awesome. <laughs> can all those ultra runners hear that? I mean, <laughs> like, for seriously. real, for real. <laughs> <laughs> seriously I mean that's so refreshing to hear like yeah I I talked to I did an interview with your friend Ro who's amazing and the co-author of the Belief Journal Ro Magadian Dumas you mean yeah yes yeah she is an awesome name and she actually said something very similar now at this point she's not a professional she's a mother she's working and for her, she's like, all I need is 30 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think for a lot of us, myself included, you know, sometimes you're like, a run is not a run unless it's 45 minutes or whatever yeah. you qualify as a run, you yeah, know? Yeah. And it's like, okay, 20 minutes can do the trick. Yeah. And it all depends what you're trying to get out of it. If it's for training, 20 minutes seems pretty small. You're like, oh, but 20 minutes, what's that doing for my fitness? Um, but if it's just for refreshment you know, to experience that, that little, that humming feeling. Yeah. 20 minutes is great. Yeah. It's I mean, awesome. a latte only takes 20 minutes to drink. I'm not going to underestimate the value of that. <laughs> That's was, a good 20 minutes. <laughs> I was sitting in a coffee shop, maybe it was like two weeks ago in, um, in Bend. And it was a Sunday afternoon and I was working on the podcast and I looked up in the window and I saw this woman running and she had a beautiful stride and she had these really cool sunglasses on. And it was you. <laughs> and I 
started tearing up because it was the first time I'd ever like seen you running in the flesh, you know, because I've obviously seen a ton of videos, but just since I've known yeah. you, you haven't ever been running in the wild, running in the wild, <laughs> in the wild and been downtown. Yeah. It's and it so just funny. made me so happy and I can't wait to run with you. That's cool. I actually got a couple text messages from people in town that were like, did I just see you running? I'm like, it was only 20 minutes. How'd you catch me? Like, how did you see it happen? <laughs> can't get away with anything. Karen. Can't get away with it. No. But on the flip side, you have been exploring new mediums during this time, including mountain biking. Yeah. What got you into that? Well, um, we live in an incredible place for mountain biking. You know, any place that's good for trail running generally is good for mountain biking. And I grew up on a bike, you know, like I lived in a neighborhood full of kids, boys and girls. And we used to just, we'd get home from school and we would get on our bikes and we would just go terrorize the place and we would go over little jumps and and whatever. And I, um, I enjoyed it. You know, I feel comfortable on a bike and, uh, I rode my bike to school for a while until I started getting things stolen off of it because no, no girls rode their bike to school in middle school and the boys didn't want me there. So they stole my pedals in my seat. (laughs) So I stopped riding after that. But, um, when I wasn't not able to run, I wanted to experience the trails um, the same trails, you know, in a, with the wind blowing and at faster speeds and all that stuff that you don't get on a walk. And it was so good. It just felt really right. It felt really comfortable. So I went ahead and bought a nice mountain bike. I was like, I'm just going to go for it. And, um, and I just found that I would go out on the trails and most of the time just ride just for fun. Like you would a casual run. And then every now and then I would just get this bug to like hammer it. And I would go do some of the loops and Phil's trails and I would just ride hard and it just felt good just for the sake of it. You know, I didn't know there was nobody with like a stopwatch. I don't have any reference points. I hadn't read any training books on mountain bike riding. And then I would come back and I'm on Strava and I would see that my times for those loops were like really fast (laughs) compared to other riders, like men and women in the area, you know, like not like the best, but up there. And the competitive side of me was starting to get like an itch scratched too of, okay, this is kind of fun. People have done these routes and on the days when I feel like hammering, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it and see, you know, see how good I can get or whatever. And so, um, I actually just signed up for my first mountain bike race. (laughs) <laughs> so cool this weekend it's just like a cross-country mountain bike race so it's not you know crazy downhill stuff it's not super technical um it's a mixture of single track and road and dirt road it's called the chain breaker the start time is six in the morning what are you gonna wear lauren <laughs> i'm gonna wear running clothes <laughs> in your fanny pack <laughs> yeah i'll probably wear my fanny pack <laughs> <laughs> what if you want it and you everyone would be like who is that chick she's not even in like the proper gear i know it would be funny um well i can't win it because i'm not in the elite race but i'm in you could probably sport win class heat. i don't know we'll see so what's that feel like to be like a beginner because i mean in running yeah. you're not a beginner totally. duh, and you enter races and people know your name what does it feel like to go into something and be with the masses oh it's awesome it's really cool. I, um, I love having an opportunity to be new at something again, like to be at that spot where you can make huge gains and you don't know whether you should feel good or bad about something yet. You just kind of go do it and you, you judge yourself on how hard you worked. 
um, and what kind of story you get out of it <laughs> at the end. That's, that's how a lot of people, a lot of people have that with their running and that's really nice. Like I, I never had that with my running really. Um, I still, obviously, as you know, I'm obsessed with running, so it's not like it's held me back and in, in my enjoyment, but, but yeah, I get to, I get to experience cycling the way a lot of people that I talk to in the running world experience running and I'm, I'm pumped. It's I'm cool. Pumped for you. And I'm, I'm working on, um, with Roe actually the, the newest, uh, in the series of the believe training journals and the, um, for, for next year. And the focus of this book is competition and we're diving into you know, 12 chapters on competition and different ways of looking at it and experiencing it. So it's really a good time right now to be experiencing competition as a beginner in something else to have that perspective to call from, um, at least to be able to empathize with, <laughs> Um, and cause we'll be covering everything from people with Olympic goals to people doing the first race, you know, it's just finding those threads in the spirit of competition and how to be successful, whatever that means to you. It's been, it's been really good. Yeah. I think from watching Peyton Jordan, it was clear to me that even people at the highest level in competition, it's still hard. It never gets easier. Yeah. Like I think sometimes us mortals or my, myself included us muggles, <laughs> we, you know, we look at people on the track and I'll be like, wow, like it must just be effortless to run five minute pace for a 5k, but no, it hurts. And because we were pretty close to actually the runners, you could hear their breath breathing. You could yeah. see their form deform. Yep. And so I love that, that with your book you're doing, it's going to be bridging everyone. Totally. I think it's important. Everybody needs to see what it's like on the other side. <laughs> and so is the competition book going to have a similar element to like the training log or is that going to stay separate? Yeah. So it will have, um, the way we're constructing it right now, at least is it will be, uh, very much the same format as the believe training journal uh, with a, a year's worth of space to write workouts divided up by month with a chapter to kind of pull together that month's experience and that through the course of the year, um, the idea is to gain tools to help you be your best competitor and to have kind of like your best relationship with competition so that it's, you know, high on joy and high on success and low on stress and uh, kind of the negative things that I think actually push a lot of people away from competition. Yeah. For sure. We're kind of building the case for competition, I think, in a way. <laughs> cool. And you're using yourself as your own testing ground. Yeah. And ha and it's really nice that, you know, not just having this experience being a beginner at something, but because um, that, that isn't necessarily direct experience to a new runner. It's just more like uh, analogous or whatever. But I have experience as a coach, coaching people to performance, and I have experience as a um, you know, high school age competitor, college age competitor, professional level competitor. So I, as I'm working on this book, both Ro and I, it's nice to kind of have those opportunities to be like, Oh yeah, I've learned some things, you know, along the way. And, and we, we actually get to put them all together in one place, which is nice. Otherwise they'd just be floating around for the rest of our life. <laughs> That's so gratifying. Yeah. So with the writing component of it, what has it been like to kind of have to chip away at something and write? Like, what kind of practice have you have you created to get this done? Um, 
I kind of just sat down and, well, first we did a lot of back and forth on higher level concept and what, how we wanted a reader to come in at the beginning of the year versus leave the book a year later. Um, and when you know what your goal is for how you want people to leave a year later, it makes it a lot easier to figure out the pieces that need to go into the book. And then you try to create an arc of an experience. And, um, so that each, so the year has an arc and each month has an arc and even each week has an arc. And, um, and then it was a matter of just kind of back and forth emails and Google docs and figuring out what do we, what do we think are the most important factors of competition to being your fastest and your happiest and, and then trimming that list down to 12 and then divvying up who could speak best to each topic so that we each write half the book. And then, then I just kind of like poured it all out. I wrote six chapters in two days, <laughs> at least the first draft. Um, You're more of a marathon writer than <laughs> honestly, that's kind of wow. how I am with a lot of things. Like if, if, if I can get the best way for me to do something is to create an environment where I can put all of myself into it without distraction. And that's what I need to do when I coach my athletes. I need to set blocks of time uninterrupted to just completely dive into that one athlete's experience. And that way I can most effectively, uh, you know, be the puppeteer looking at it from the highest level of what needs to move where and what's already moved, you know? So with writing a book, it's like that too. That's just been the biggest challenge is being a mother makes creativity borderline impossible. You know, you can't have, it just can't happen willy nilly. No, you have to be really intentional about setting yeah. that time. It's brutal. I had all these thoughts, like when I first had a kid of, oh, well, back in the day, I used to just be able to pick up a creative whim whenever and write. And so now I need to be able to learn to, when a moment arises, seize it. But I honestly, I just haven't been that successful at that. I don't think that's possible. When I was in Boulder and Seattle for training camp with the team, I thought I would have everything written by then. I had a whole schedule for myself. I had times blocked off. But when I would sit down during those times, I mean, a lot of times I was just exhausted. I'd already used up a bunch of my creative fuel on the athletes with coaching and a lot of my emotional energy with Jude. And I could I could have made you a grocery list at that time, but I couldn't have written anything deeper than that. So yeah, I think that's that's hard. I feel like I'm starting to understand why writers go on these re- writing retreats, you know, and workshop weekends. It's just, it'd be worth every penny because you actually get something out. <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking a lot of that that same idea about like the fuel and the different places we put our fuel and our energy to. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes like we want to expect more out of ourselves being like, oh, I would be able to sit down for those two hours and be able to write, you know, one of the chapters. But sometimes you're so right. Like where you put your energy, the, all the other places, it can really deplete you. It can. And so then where, like, where do you put it and how do you parcel it out? I feel like it's a... Yeah, how do you do the slow drip? Sometimes you really have to do the slow drip through the day if you know you have a creative block later. Yes. I don't know. It's hard. It is hard. But um, also what's kind of cool with writing, and last month was we gave people writing prompts. And so even and the writing prompts we gave were a two-minute and a five-minute prompt. Yeah, and we're going to do that again this week, right? At yeah. the end? Yeah, we are. Well, we had wanted to... Um, yeah, so people sent in their prompts which I thought was really cool. And we definitely invite you guys to do it again. It was really brave of people. So thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, and I think we should read, um, read one of these. 
Yeah, I was let's looking do at it. them, and there's one that I that I particularly want to read. Yeah, okay. start out. So the first prompt was, "What I really want to tell you," and you're supposed to write for two minutes on that, starting with that. And then the next prompt was, "The part I'm leaving out is." So, what I really want to tell you is, I think teaching is hard, but I do believe it's what I'm meant to do, at least for a little while. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be working at a charter school. As happy as I am here, I question the end goal of the whole movement. It's hard for me to be sure that working in this setting aligns with my values of empathy and trust and believing that people are mostly good. I also don't know if it's kind of racist and ageist to be at a school with so many young teachers who come from privileged backgrounds teaching kids who are so largely not white and not privileged. But what does privilege really mean anyway? I know for me it means so many societal advantages, but I wonder if that's all. And I really want to tell you that I love you and want to be with you forever, but I'm scared. I'm scared that you'll change your mind. I'm scared that I might change my mind. I'm scared of repeating my mom's mistake. The part I'm leaving out is, I don't know if this is what I'm leaving out necessarily, but my mom's mistake, at least in my eyes, was marrying someone who was not right for her. I always wonder why my mom married my dad. I think it's mostly because she felt like she was running out of time. I don't feel that way with you. I still feel young, and I don't feel like I have to get married. I want to have kids, of course. Of course for me, not for everyone. And I want to have them with you. But I wonder if I'll look back on this first year of ups and downs and say to myself, I should have known. What I hope is that my belief is true. That love is a choice we make every day. And then if we can both continue to choose each other, we'll be okay. Not always happy, but definitely not always sad. And always sure that love is there, even when things are feeling crazy and maybe a little unsafe. This is cool. I love, I love reading these um, answers to these prompts. You know, this is for people that are new to this idea. This isn't about editing or crafting something. Um, it's really about having a time constraint and just an idea that gets your brain flowing and your pen moving and you just want to keep the pen moving. And if you put yourself in an environment like that, truth tends to come out. And that's really what we're trying to, um, encourage is getting to a truthful nugget that, you may be burying or overlooking or something like that. And there's lots of great moments in this piece about teaching and charter schools and issues of race and privilege and ageism and all these things of how many times do we find ourselves down a career path and then questioning kind of the point of it all, learning about all the factors at play and what your role in it is and how something that was at one point so simple, I want to teach children, becomes something really complicated kind of um, stirs you, you know, into like an unease and uh, just getting it out, I think is really, can really help get you to a point of clarity about, yeah, yeah like you where you really need, sit with it. Yeah. That you don't need to start in writing, or at least in my, my own experience is like you can begin journaling and not always know where your pen's going to even take you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And her answer does, it jumps from, teaching to, I want to tell you that I love you and want to be with you forever, but I'm scared. Right. Yeah. It's like you can have, it's such a great example of the things going in and on in your mind at all times can be so disconnected, so unrelated, but both happening, you know, at the same time in a two minute period of time, we've covered 
teaching in charter schools and underprivileged areas and like not being sure if the person you love is the person for you. Yeah. Yeah. It just always, it, it just again reminds me that like, you know, everyone has a story, everyone has a struggle that they're dealing with. And mm-hmm. even though that's very like simple and cliche, just when I read these prompts, it again reminds me that like we all have so much in our lives, you know, we're processing Yep. and that we do need to be able to talk about it and share about it. Yeah. And writing is the kind of the most accessible tool we have. You know, if you don't have that best friend or a life partner or a psychologist or someone else face to face, you you always have a pen and a paper. So, um, let's use them (laughs) and stay tuned for the prompt at the end of the series. Yeah. So let's get into our questions. All right. You ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Our first question is from don't call it a comeback. Hi, Lauren and Julia. I'm a runner who's trying to get back some fitness after a long break. Over two years of getting in just a few miles here and there, getting back into shape has been so hard, and I'm nowhere near where I used to be. I'm finally feeling ready to start pursuing goals again, but two years off has made me great at making excuses. While I've been a lot better at getting out the door and starting to log some miles, the runs are a huge struggle mentally. Do you have any tips for making the transition back to being a devoted runner? How do you get and keep yourself motivated to get out the door every day? I'd love to hear your thoughts on building up some mental stamina, as well as tips on building up mileage after a long time off. I'd appreciate any advice you have. I love listening to your conversations. You're amazing women. Well, um, there's a couple things in here I want to talk about. The first one, just as a, a story, um, where she says after, but two years off has made me really great at making excuses. I was just thinking about this too. So I've had, you know, basically since I had my son, I got into this habit of eating a lot of pastries. Like I never really ate them except for as treats before. And then when I was breastfeeding and my metabolism was out of control and I started back training, it was like, I could, I needed to eat basically whatever to keep my milk supply up. And it didn't seem to matter. I, I learned fortunately for me that if I, it didn't really matter what I ate, as long as I stopped when I was full, I could eat croissants and cookies as long as I stopped when I was full. And, um, and I wasn't, it didn't like change my physique really. And it's, it's funny how good nutrition is a lot about a lot more than how you look on the outside but how we look on the outside is such a powerful, the most obvious deterrent sometimes to eating bad food that for a while, because I could get away with it, I mean, honestly, for like two and a half years, basically as long as Jude's been alive, I've been eating so much junk and it's, it's been hard to motivate to stop eating it. And now that I'm running again, I actually am motivated to just feel good and to like nourish my body and I'm... I'm, I'm like just starting to want to eat healthier. And I've been telling people I'm going to start eating healthier now. And the athletes I coach have basically only seen me eating pastries and they're like, ha yeah, right. And your part in here about how you've become really great at making excuses. Like today was such a good example. I go to this bakery that also makes really good non-bakery food, like lox and bagel. Right. And I'm at the counter and I see the almond croissant and I really want to get the almond croissant because that's what I always get. It's, this is like a, a one pound almond croissant. This is not like the light almond croissant. This thing is serious. It's okay. Hefty. This thing is like, this thing is like a burger. Okay. So I see it. I'm like, I'm not going to get it. I'm going to get the lox and bagel as protein. It's good for me. And I do I get it, eat it there. And then right before I leave to go coach, I go buy the almond croissant for later. And <laughs> 
and a cookie while I'm at it and bring it with me. And I show up to do this podcast with Jules with like two pastry bags full of pastries. And it's like those, those habits, you know, you get really good at certain things and, um, certain behaviors. And, uh, it's, it does, you know, it does take time to like shift that. And you can be in this awkward phase when you're transitioning. And I feel like that's a little bit of what don't call it a comeback is talking about here is like, I'm in that awkward phase of, I want to do this, but I'm still kind of got leftovers from back here. And I only tell that story just as like a normalizing of the experience, totally. you know, that, that is, that's just part of the deal. You know, it's like that it's a really messy changing of gears. Those gears are grinding right now. And that sometimes we think with change, it's going to be like a light switch and that's not the case. Yeah. Cause it's like, maybe you'll have a couple days, you know, that are a little bit more balanced and then a couple days that aren't and you build momentum and then you have a couple steps back and a couple steps forward. Yeah. And what I'm trying to do right now is just like, okay, a month from now, I want it to look more like this. So somehow between where I am right now and a month from now, I'm going to get there. It's going to be kind of messy. You know, I'm going to just do the best I can to get there. I'm going to give myself a little bit of grace. I don't want to be, try to be extreme. Um, and then just to get to kind of the real heart of your question, talking about tips of building up mental stamina and tips on building up mileage. Um, I would say the two, uh, like easiest things you could try are having a workout partner that you meet once or twice a week for your harder, harder days. I mean, that's just like total proven method. Even if you don't have someone you can meet all the time, you just need a person and someone that you'll want to run on those in-between days so that you're fit enough to keep up with them on the workout days. And, you know, so you don't hold them back. Like sometimes people really are motivated by being a contributing member of a team or group and you need to show up for that person. You guys are showing up together on those harder workout days together. So, um, that can help. And then podcasts. I mean, oh my gosh, that's what I do. Listen to podcasts and, and you can listen. Um, so I had a lot of trouble motivating to cross train through a lot of my injuries that I've had over the years. And it was like night and day. If I found a podcast I liked and I only let myself listen to that podcast while doing that activity, it would get my butt in the gym to get on the elliptical. It really would, because I want to know what happened next. Like that's what serial was for me. So if you haven't listened to serial, the original serial, I don't know about season two. I'm like kind of stuck on episode three right now. I'm not, I'm not really, I haven't caught the bug yet, but serial and radio lab are like my favorites because they're totally intellectually stimulating and kind of mysterious a lot of the times. So, um, I get hooked and then it's like, oh, I better go to the gym if I want to find out what happens next. Totally. Totally. And I also think as far as getting your mileage back, I mean, you spoke to this in your return to running, but I'm not sure what level of fitness, don't call it a comeback is that, but walk running is a really powerful tool that I think people overlook when they're coming back to running, especially at times when they've just been a consistent runner. Yes. You forget that actually to return, you need to also make it more bite-sized. Can you speak to that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, definitely. I mean, people that identify as runners often look down on walking, um, especially if you've been a runner for many years or whatever, like walking probably left your repertoire a long time ago. And, and that was certainly a challenge for me to kind of be like, oh yeah, I'm going to take walk breaks. But there's a lot of physiological reasons why they can help you make your comeback without getting hurt. Um, you know, like you, if you on a walk break, you give the muscles and tendons a chance to restore their energy levels. The ATP fills back up and, uh, it takes three minutes to fully do that hundred percent, recover the tissues and like 90 seconds of walking will get you something like 70% of the way there. I don't know the exact number, but 
when you're starting back after a break, it's not just a matter of your heart and lungs being able to handle it. Like your ligaments, tendons, bones, you know, your very structure is not used to running anymore. And running is a violent activity when you're unfit. Like when, once you're fit, it doesn't feel violent anymore. It feels like the smoothest thing ever, but you know, regardless of how it feels in your head, the, the way your body is interpreting this is you're slamming your limbs against the concrete <laughs> repeatedly after having not done it for a long time. So if you're not willing to kind of overlook the walking thing for um, ego reasons, think of it scientifically and that can help. And, um, you know, you could, I would just say, start, start with like, if you need to, at the very basic level, classic thing is one minute runs with three minute walks building up to being able to do eight to 10 minutes of total running and then gradually lengthen the time. And, um, you know, two minute runs, three minute walks, three minute runs, three minute walks, et cetera, getting up to 20 minutes of total running. And then, and that's what the plan I'm on right now. So I work my way up to four times five minutes with three minute walks and then two times 10 minute with a three minute walk and then 20 minutes, um, is what's next on deck for me. But there, you know, there's lots of ways you can do it, but basically don't be afraid to walk. Yeah, I love that. And finding a buddy is super important. Yeah, big time. Cool. I look forward to hearing how it goes. Come back. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Next one is from young coach trying to balance a big team. I'm a cross country and distance track coach at a local middle school and high school. I just love being with them. But in some ways, it is a team divided. Some of the runners are super focused and hardworking and have their sights set on collegiate racing. Others love the social aspect and just having a team family. I want both to feel excited and rewarded by the team environment. Both are great reasons to be there. I want to affirm both without diminishing the rigor of the workouts for the competitive ones. Any suggestions for how to do both? It's just me coaching and we have a group of 45 runners. I actually have so many fond memories of my high school team and my coach, Dave DeLong, doing this so well. We had over 100 kids on the team. So I have some pretty specific examples that I think, looking back, made a big difference. Um, my coach did something called Athlete of the Week t-shirts. And so he would print a big box of shirts that had a special kind of like catchy message on the back. And you could only get this shirt as being an Athlete of the Week. It said Athlete of the Week on it or whatever. But it doesn't have to be a shirt. But whatever, you get the idea. Some kind of physical thing And once a week he would give out athlete of the week shirts and he had different categories. And basically what you got to do, um, to honor all these, you know, these kind of two sides of the coin is pick, um, awards based on the characteristics you want to foster. And so you could have performance of the week, which completely honors that killer race. Um, you could have one that's like a most improved hard work oriented one. And that, of course, could end up going to one of the top athletes on the team, or it could go to a total rookie who is usually usually falls into that other category of I'm here for the fun, but they start to catch the bug. So it gives you a lot of freedom in in um, who you give that award to, and then something like uh, you know the team positive spark, or you can give it your own word, you know the matriarch, the patriarch, whatever it is, like some award that is the the unifier like that has done something in the past week to foster a feeling of family, of cheering on others. Maybe they made signs for the race for other athletes. Um, And if you do that on a regular basis, you will see kids, 
you know, responding accordingly. And you're just making a really clear statement that you value all those things. And I would just say, I totally get the, um, it's natural to kind of fear that like, if you, if you support or encourage those other types of behaviors that aren't the competitive ones, that it might, um, diminish the competitive kids efforts. Uh, but I think that what you'll find is kids that are driven that way to be highly competitive, it's like deep in them. It's not going to go anywhere. Right. And so really you'll be doing those athletes a huge favor by showing them that you, um, you know, you, you appreciate the whole athlete and that no matter how fast you are, like it's still important to support your teammate and, you know, and show up and encourage others and all that. And then a specific example of one type of workout that brings together the whole team. You could try this out if you want. So, um, coach along used to do relays and he would assemble groups of two to three people for these relays. And he would try to make them so that each team was even. So like the fastest kid on the team was often paired with the slowest kid on the team. And it would be a mix of girls, boys, whatever. And, you know, as a coach, I'm sure you really know where everybody stands. You can take your best crack at it. And, uh, and then, um, he had several variations of this, but I'll just give you the one that was the most popular. We had one called the weight room relay and there was a 2k loop from our school, from the, from the weight room. And, um, you would pair you up with one to two other people and you would have to run the 2k loop and then, uh, do 20 bench press. And no matter how long it took you to do 20, like if you had to do four sets of five or whatever, uh, your, your loop wasn't over until you racked the weights at the end. And when you, and your partner had to wait for you to do that. And once you racked, they got to start. And so it added this really fun element because some of the fastest kids are actually really terrible at the bench press. <laughs> and so it was this, this, this like X factor of how would things play out and no one really knew which team was going to win. And the kids would get really, really into it. And the um, fastest kids were really cheering on the slower kids and uh, nobody wanted to let anybody else down. And then he had real prizes. I mean, he, I don't even know if this is legal or not, or if he does it anymore, but we got money. I mean, he gave like $10 to each kid on the winning team and $5 to each kid on the second and third and $1 to each kid on the third place team. Um, but another thing you could do is have, you, know, you can use any motivation you wanted at the end, but some kind of reward is definitely helpful. But those days were so fun and they definitely, every kid got something out of themselves. Like they worked hard and you developed an appreciation for all the people on your team, um, in a way that carried, carried outside that workout, right. To the race course where we were cheering each other on, on the races too. So I highly recommend trying to figure something like that out. Oh, I love that. <laughs> wow. Is your high school coach still coaching? He is. Yeah. He coaches at Canyon high school. He's the man. That's so cool. Long tradition of having people fall in love with the sport. Yeah. Um, and you coached. So what about your experiences in this, Jules? Yeah, I feel like a lot of what you're saying has resonance, which is to really make workouts fun and also to give like numerous options. So I was a big proponent in coaching for time on most of our easy runs because I found with kids of all different abilities and who were doing running for different reasons, 60 minutes is really long for some folks. And if they're running, you know, 10 minute mile pace versus seven minute mile pace for 60 minutes, totally different distance covered and so that was just a really huge thing for me is like always giving a lot of options and then when you get back because different people are going to be getting back to campus at different times 
always having something set up for the kids to do. That was, and I did a lot of group core together. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. And so that was kind of fun and similar to how you're talking about like the bench press. I'm just imagining like everyone's surrounded around you, like little scrawny, (laughs) scrawny Lauren, like, you know, and you're just like pushing and everyone's like, you got it. You know? And I think that was really fun with doing group core and group yoga classes together is just doing a lot of partner work. So people kind of felt like they were working in collaboration with each other. That's really cool. Yeah, no, I agree. We would do drills days too, like that, and partner core. Um, uh, One thing I forgot to mention about the relay for anyone listening that's going to try it, we would, you have to do it three times each, just so, you know, if it wasn't like you did it once and then you passed the baton. So each person did three times 2K, basically. Unless you had a relay group of three, then you had to, you know, you work it out differently two times or whatever. But yeah. yeah. And I also, I mean, sometimes also like with our runs, we would oftentimes have, they were adventure focused. Mm-hmm. So we had Walden Pond, which is in Concord, Massachusetts, where I coached. And so if everyone ran to the pond, they got to go swimming in the pond, <laughs> you know? And so like making a destination or something special about the run. And there's this run where there's this tower you get to watch up, walk up and see the top. And so no matter if someone's, you know, running the run super speedy or slow, like everyone gets to experience the kind of cool parts of it. Together. That's cool. That common experience. Mm-hmm. element of it I yeah. love that yeah. yeah good stuff good luck young coach <laughs> so next one is from gig who writes I love hearing stories about your father he sounds like he was such a great dad can you tell us what he was like when you discovered you had a great running potential early in life how was he supportive and proud and how did he keep you grounded or even well-rounded I always like to hear stories of dads that did it right. And if you could share how he was involved with your early running life, I would sincerely appreciate it. Thanks. Well, gig, we're actually coming up on the one year anniversary of my dad's death. It's uh, May 15th. So I've been thinking about him a lot lately. Um, And, you know, my dad did a lot of things well, and he screwed up a lot of things too, you know, classic human being. Um, but I definitely would say that the way he was in my running was one of the strongest areas for him as a father. Um, I think the biggest things he did were, was, um, running was always mine. He let it be my thing. I drove the bus. He was really, truly just my unconditional supporter. He didn't come to every race. Um, he came to the ones that he could Um, but he always asked how they went and showed a genuine interest. And he really, to me, I just feel like he emphasized like the way it was fought as opposed to the result. So he really wanted like the blow by blow and he didn't just ask about my race. You know, he took an interest in, um, my friends, you know, my best friends on the team or people that I had mentioned looking up to, you know, and he'd ask me like, how was their race? How did they feel about it? You know? And, uh, I, I, to me that just showed that he cared not just about my performances, but about my experience as an athlete and, and the, the people that I cared about in the sport. Um, I'd say another thing that he did that was really great was, um, he, always just emphasized doing the best you could on the day with what you had and, and also, um, what you brought your team. My dad was a construction worker 
And sometimes he got to be foreman of a crew. And sometimes he was just a member of the crew. But knowing that in his life, he was kind of like an opportunity to lead was like a gift. When he got to be foreman, he really wanted to rally the troops. And like he wanted to be someone people wanted to work for. And he would ask me questions about my running that had to do with leadership too. You know, and, and with an understanding that you don't always get to lead. Sometimes you follow, sometimes you lead. But uh, he, he really brought that other dimension to the sport that was about the um, effect you're having on others, the way you're contributing to an environment, not just how much did you train and how fast did you go. So I think he really contributed to sport being super rich for me, um, which I'm super grateful for now. Do you think your parents, when they saw and your father, you know, he saw obviously you had a tremendous capacity, you know, in high school and had a lot of success. Did you feel pressure from him or your mom, like to make it your gateway into college or to continue doing it? Like, how did they relate to that? Oh man, I felt zero pressure. And honestly, I think it's actually kind of hard to recreate for most parents because I, I honestly don't think my parents even knew scholarships existed. We hardly even talked about college. Neither of my parents went to college. And when we talked about college, I mean, I had good grades and all that stuff. So it was like, it was an option, but it wasn't a regular conversation we had by any means. It was really something that was just unfolding in my life. They just made sure that I, the environment I had was an environment where I could um, succeed, but it was up to me to do the work. It was up to me to kind of push the needle and I remember being the one that came home after learning from my high school coach and being like, uh, did you know you can get scholarships to college for running? You know, it was sort of mind blown. They were like, oh, well, that would sure help. Um, but their answer was always, well, you could always go to community college here in town. If not, and it, there was nothing loaded or negative about that. And I think that that was really helpful because it just, just the way teenage mind works. I mean, hell, the way my two-year-old's mind works. The, the tighter you cling on to something, the more they fight it. I mean, I don't even think they knew how, how brilliant they were being with the athletic side because neither of them did sports. But the way they happened to do it um, was, was, is exactly how I would want to do it now, you know, with my own family. Because it really did always, it always felt like running was mine. It always felt like I was choosing it. And that um, there was no pressure for any stage that I wasn't putting on myself. And if I, if they saw me putting pressure on myself, they would always try to get rid of it. They would always kind of just be like, hey, it's okay. You know, you can always go to community college. You don't even have to go to college. You know, like we didn't and we're happy. You know what I mean? So they just kind of kept it real for me. And they, they also were sure to ask questions about my social life and school just as much as sports, which I think was also really important that your value as a human being was so much more than just your athletic capacity. You know, there were so yeah. many other things. And I needed to be showing up for my family too, you know? And like, I think about that with um, Jesse, my husband, pro triathlete. When he gets home, you know, he's just my husband. He's not like this champion triathlete, right? He's like, did you, did you help take out the trash? I really need you, you know, like once he's home, it's just like life. We're just back at life now. <laughs> and, um, my family kept my feet on the ground that way. Yeah. And I know you did a lot of long road trips with your family <laughs> that I've heard about from your mom. So you definitely had, you know, had a lot of time to just 
have to hang out and roll yeah, with the punches. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, stay home from those to get in extra training. I mean, we went on our family vacations and if that meant I couldn't get my running in, I couldn't get my running in. Yeah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> Next up, we have a question from Penny Lane, who writes, I recently completed my college ed- eligibility and would love to pursue running and racing post-collegiately. My marks from last year have earned some reciprocated interest from a few pro groups, but I'm not at the level to attract a real deal sponsorship yet. Most of my hesitancy in diving all the way stems from, one, a series of injuries, some pretty serious, that have plagued me off and on since college day one. I realize injuries are always going to be a risk factor, but maybe I'm not healthy enough to sustain long-distance running at this stage of the game. Two, I'll be on my own financially and will probably scrap by with a part-time job while running with the pro group. So my question is, would I be better off developing as an athlete by building a consistent base while also saving up money before I join a professional training group? Or can I do it all? Join the group, build consistency, live within my means, etc. Thank you. Well, Penny Lane, I mean, there's a lot of ways you can do this. So it's, I'm, I don't know how helpful we're going to be in this decision. We'll probably just make it more complicated, but I still think it's worth talking about. Um, your hesitancy uh, tells me that you should really consider, like strongly consider um, your option of holding off jumping into a pro group right now and spending that time developing yourself. And the reason I say that is, uh, yes, injuries are super common. And once you're quote all in into the sport, they can be even more devastating because like your whole life revolves around pro running. So, um, if you don't have confidence in your body, you don't feel like you're building on a strong foundation right now, it might be wise to take some time and build that. Uh, a good example I thought of when reading your question was Anna Weber. She's a teammate of mine and she was in grad school and she kind of took your, took the path from my understanding of your option of I'm going to pursue other things, uh, work and run and then maybe dive into it more fully later. Uh, and she did that, you know, she was in grad school, she was still competing and she just, she got to a point eventually of now I'm ready. Like I want to dive in fully. I'm strong. I'm healthy. Like I can see the light at the tunnel and I want to go after it. And so she did a GoFundMe page and raised some funds to kind of help her at least get that off the ground and get her through those first few months while she figured it out ended up qualifying for the marathon Olympic trials and had a great race there. Um, and she's racing with Wazelle right now. And that's a great success story of someone who did it in a non-traditional way or a way that feels less obvious, right? Like the going straight from college into a pro group is kind of the safer, you know, this leads to this leads to this leads to this approach. And that doesn't really work for everybody. Um, you know, very few people really make it in the pro ranks. That's just the fact. And I think the Wazelle Hope Volet has shown me the diversity in ages that like you can pursue professional running. It doesn't have to be right out of college. You can come back to it five, ten years after college, actually, totally. and still compete at a high level. That's the There's truth. so many women who mm-hmm. are doing it. So I think it's really smart to build that foundation of health in mind and body before you really invest your life into it fully. I think so, too, because the environment of a pro running group isn't going to just magically make you a great pro runner, right? Like you have to be 
that fertile ground going into that environment, ready to soak it in, ready for it to work its magic. So it, that it's just right there. It's like if you, when you feel ready, the group will work for you. And they're really obviously our assets to being in a group. You'll probably have more um, help with medical stuff, you know, PT and massage and whatnot, and um, more organized coaching and people to run with. Like there's a, obviously a lot of benefits, but those things don't make the runner. For sure. Yeah. For sure. So next up, Bricks for Legs writes, Since running a huge marathon PR in 2014, three hours and three minutes, my running has been derailed for what it feels like an unnaturally long time. Let me describe my last nine months of running. Each run feels very hard, legs heavy, breathing labored, and my pace is much slower than usual. For instance, 9.30 to 9 minute mile pace feels tough right now, whereas 7.45 to 8.15 mile pace used to be my easy run pace. To flesh out the picture of what my life has looked like over the past one and a half years, I've had a pesky hamstring injury for almost one year that's prevented me from doing much speed work. I've gained eight pounds, and I've had times of intense stress at work. I don't feel like any of these factors can explain my current difficulties. I want to feel perky enough to seriously train for a marathon again, but that does not feel possible right now. Overall, I'm baffled as to why running feels so strenuous, and I would love any advice you have. P.S. Thank you for these wonderful podcasts. Well, bricks for legs. Actually, I feel like it's so interesting because I do this too. And it's so much easier to see it when other people are saying it. But you very clearly lay out some factors and that could be contributing to how you feel. And then you very quickly kind of like diminish them as I don't feel like these can be the reason. Um, sometimes I feel like the only thing that's, we only let these like gigantic things be, uh, be possibilities for us feeling bad, right? Like the death of somebody or like a terrible derailing injury or something, but, um, stress at work. And you even say intense stress of work, uh, an injury that's kept you from doing much speed work. So your training has been compromised as far as working all the different systems that you normally would work. Um, you mentioned gaining weight. It's not like, to me, that doesn't feel like a significant amount for my reference point, but still there's differences from where you've been, where you are now, um, across a variety of factors and you feel, you know, you feel worse <laughs> and you felt consistently worse. So I think it could be those things like those could definitely don't, don't discount them completely. Um, especially the stress thing because Jules and I were just talking about this earlier, stress, all comes from the same well, physical stress, emotional stress, work stress, you have a stress well. And every time you need to like cope with stress, you're pulling water out of it. And so if you're having to pull water out of it for relationship stuff, work stuff, whatever, by the time you get to needing to place physical stress on yourself for the run, the well's been depleted already, right? And that's a very real, that's a very real thing. Very much so. And that, I mean, a year and a half is something you should take seriously. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think anyone should feel like a year and a half of their life, they're feeling really not themselves. Mm -hmm. And so seeking out help, checking, we talked about this off air, but like going to your doctor, checking out your hormone levels, your iron level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are some definite flags. So, and, and when I said like, don't discount those factors you mentioned, that doesn't mean that there isn't also something else going on. So yeah, it, I think 
you're totally right, Jules. Like that is the other thing. See a doctor. A year and a half is a long time. Um, my only, I'm not a doctor, but the things, the common things that I've seen be the reason for situations that I've seen similar to yours are iron levels, um, <clears throat> low iron, low ferritin, whatever can lead to this feeling of kind of like heavy legs and fatigue and just blah. Um, and it could be maybe you've changed, changed your birth control method recently. Any shift, anything that shifts your hormone profile can have this effect. I mean, you're basically describing the feeling that I get during PMS every month, but you're having it all the time, which makes me kind of just think just my little meter saying, check, check into that, check into that you're where your how your female hormones are being regulated. It might be, um, that you've been on the same type of birth control a long time and it's time for a change. It might be that, you know, you're not using any at all and maybe you, something could help. I mean, I don't know, talk to a professional, but definitely look into that because that has made a difference for people. Um, you know, thyroid levels and cortisol levels, all those things. Yeah. Yeah. And just make sure you find the right doctor, like someone that is an athlete themselves when you look at their profiles really helps because they understand that surviving and then f versus thriving as an athlete are two very different things and they'll be less likely to discount your feeling of heavy leggedness. I love that surviving versus thriving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a huge difference there. Yep. Last question is from run where you like, she writes, I was so lucky to be able to attend bird camp in Levensforth, Washington and sit next to Lauren by the pool as she played her guitar and sang beautiful songs. I remember talking about her fear of going to an open mic night in Bend to play her songs, and I remember giving her some suggestions as a frequent open mic night observer. Shortly after returning from bird camp, I saw a post on Instagram, I believe, from Lauren saying she found the courage to play her songs. I'm curious how she finally found the courage to get up there in front of everyone and face her fears head on. Oh man, well, this is an easy answer, I have to say. Um... <clears throat> It is not a coincidence that we had that conversation by the pool and that I was just at bird camp, which was, you know, 100 women runners all together in a supportive community environment um, and then and having, you know, great conversations and um, being inspired by people. And then also I followed that up with going to another camp, Muse Camp, which was a lot about creative expression and a lot about letting go of perfectionism and. Um, and creating for the sake of it, you know, sort of leaning into all those parts of creativity. And I, a lot of, uh, sparks were flying between those two experiences. And so really it just comes down to being in the presence of strong women made the difference for me. I needed to be around people being courageous in the various, uh, ways that they live their life. It didn't even have to be directly with music and open mic, but just seeing it in front of me whether it's in motherhood, career, racing, you name it. Um, the more you see those behaviors, the easier it is to take those risks yourself. I love that. And I also think giving yourself permission to be a beginner. Mm-hmm. Like, Definitely. To not feel like you have to have this polished piece to go up and play. Yeah. Like something I've thought a lot about in yoga teaching is people sometimes are like, well, how do I know I'm ready to teach yoga after they've done a training? It's like you're never ready. Mm -hmm. You have to just start. Yeah. You just do it. Yeah. There, um, I also have this friend, this is what I'd say, you know, get in the presence of strong women, obviously let your, get out of your own head and, and noticing the courage in other people. I think that's a big part of it, but also having an ally, 
Um, so kind of what you're talking about, Joel, is like that role you play of when you know you're ready and you just saying things like, you're never ready, you just do it. Like I have a friend like that, Meredith, with open mic. She does open mics and she is a beginner and she allows herself to be a beginner. You know, she's not, she's not pretending to be a professional musician. You know, this, we're not at Coachella. Like we are at an open mic night in a dive bar. And so sometimes it's important to just be reminded of that. Like this is a, pl- a safe place to start. And, um, and then I also think of that quote, perfection is the enemy of done. You know, like the more you try to perfect something, you'll just never get up there. So I just let myself fail. <laughs> gave myself the space to do it and I've done it several times since it's definitely a lot easier now to get up and do it cool I hope you'll do it in May I'll get to watch you (laughs) yeah do your thing well thank you guys so much for submitting the questions and when we don't get to answer a question from this month if people resubmit it we'll totally reconsider it for the next month so I just yeah I want to give that shout out definitely thank you everybody for submitting it's really fun to talk about these with you Jules too yeah And I think we wanted to leave people with a writing prompt again, because that was fun, right? So the inspiration for this month's writing prompt came from a conversation with um, a co-teacher for Wilder, Marianne Elliott. And uh, we were just talking on the phone the other day about writing prompts and writing ideas for the camp. And um, we got on this thing of how with social media, uh, there's this beautiful opportunity to be creative in small doses, you know, create a 140 character word tweet, you know, take a, capture a photographic moment and create like a caption for it. Right. Like these are, these are little moments that give you a little taste in a busy life. And I'm really grateful for those. But one of the negative things is sometimes you take the seed of something that actually can be really a lot bigger and more meaningful that you deep down wish you had more time to dive into and you kind of use that seed in this little place in a tweet in an Instagram post in a Facebook post and then in your mind you kind of consider it done it's done with you've done it and you need to come up with a new seed new things and um, we talked about how how can we get ourselves to return to some of those seeds we've already placed out there and build on them more And so she came up with these lists. Um, I'm not sure if she came up with them or kind of gathered them in her field, but we have some writing prompts. They're two-minute prompts, and there's three of them. And these will help you to kind of get back to some of those seeds that you maybe have been depositing along the way and and, uh, be inspired to develop them more. So you're going to start a timer for two minutes on your phone. You're going to write down this prompt and then you're going to write for two minutes and you stop where the timer is. It's okay to end a sentence incomplete. It actually is good. It means when you go back to it, it'll be that much easier to pick it up later. Um, And then you'll start the timer again and then start prompt number two and then do the same thing for prompt number three. And out of that process, you can go back and start your own prompt, let's say a five minute prompt where you build on any one of those things. So the first one is Nine things I want to write about. The second prompt is nine things I will never write about. And the third prompt is nine things I'm done writing about. And so just to clarify this prompt process, 
you're saying you have two minutes for each of those nine things on that list. No. So you're literally spending two minutes making a list of that's all... called nine things I want to write about. You might end up with five. You might end up with 18. Um, but you're just going to keep the pen moving for two minutes. And the prompt is nine things I want to write about. It just gets you in the frame, the mind frame of what do I want to write about? And let's just start writing some things down. Bullet point, this, bullet point, this, bullet point, this. And just keep going till the timer's out. Um, and, and so then after you've made these three lists, if you start a five minute prompt, you can kind of look at all three of those lists and go, which one of these do I want to write on for five minutes? And I guarantee at least one is going to jump out at you that you're like, Ooh, I want to write on that. Cool. And then just only write for five minutes on it and let the pen stop where it stops. And then if you want to pick up from there and do another thing, you know, a 20 minute or a 20 minute block or something like that, go for it. But don't overthink it. Don't edit as you go along. Just keep the pen moving. You want to like shrink that space between what your mind is doing and what your pen is doing and remove the little editors between those two things. I dig it. I'm going to take, I'm going to do it. Okay, do it. (laughs) Well, thank you everybody. It's been fun until next time, huh? Yeah. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Jules. Lauren's wisdom on training, life, and everything in between never ceases to amaze me. It's really an honor to have Lauren on route every month, and we love receiving your questions. So if we're unable to answer your question this month, resubmit it when the next one-week question window opens, which we announce on Twitter. For more details on the writing prompt Lauren left you all with, visit this episode's show notes. And before I sign off for today, two things to ask. One is that you please consider donating to Running on Ohm's Patreon page. Help support me bring all of you the highest quality podcasts every week and in return get insider access into the podcast and exclusive content. Visit patreon.com slash running on Ohm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash running on Ohm to donate and know that any amount of support helps. My second ask doesn't even take a dime, just two minutes, and that's to leave an iTunes review of the podcast. You can do it right now from your phone, and even a one-sentence review makes a world of difference. So a huge thank you to all those who've already left reviews. I'm so grateful for your support, and know that I've read every single one of them. I always love to hear from all of you. My favorite is actually when people take pictures on the trail, on the bike, on their commute to work, and let me know how and where Rue is a part of your life. Thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for supporting Running on Ohm. Deep gratitude to each and every one of you. Yes, you. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a rue-filled day. <laughs>